When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's a criminal's worst nightmare. A cop who enjoys the danger. No guns, no jujitsu, just bring him down. Do you really want to jump? Well, then that's fine with me. Come on. Wait, I what do you mean? Wait a minute. What the hell? He was ready to retire. Now, he's going to wish he had. Gun! Oh, oh, oh. Raj, meet your new partner. New partner? <laughs> If these guys can just stand each other... What you got in there? Boy and Smith? A lot of old-timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. Don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody. I'm too old for this. Are you as good as you say you are? Nobody can touch me. Suppose we better register you as a lethal weapon. You ever met anybody you didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which flick we choose for each episode, we'll have a lot of fun sharing our memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. There's been a debate raging on the internet for years as to whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Well, if Die Hard is in fact a Christmas movie, which I believe it is, then this 80s flick deserves the same holiday movie label. A significant scene in the first act takes place at a Christmas tree farm, the soundtrack is packed with holiday carol classics, and the film ends with turkey dinner on Christmas Day. Well, all that considered, break out the eggnog carton without a bullet hole, trim the tree you bought at the Christmas tree farm during a drug deal bust, and watch out for the Shadow Company and Air America as Nicholas Pepin and I discuss Lethal Weapon from 1987 on this episode of the 80s flick flashback. So welcome in, everybody. Glad to have you for this episode of the 80s Flashback. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We're in the Christmas season. And so we got to do a Christmas movie. And of course, when I think of Christmas, I think of Die Hard and I think of Lethal Weapon. Oh. And uh, so that's what we're doing. So, But I want to welcome my uh, guest, first time on the show, longtime listener, <laughs> longtime friend. I met uh, Nicholas 
back in college. I won't say how long ago that was, but it wasn't last year. I can tell you that much. No, but, no, uh, it wasn't. <laughs> but, uh, but this is Nicholas Pepin. Say hello, Nicholas. Hello. So, yeah, we were I, – I remember – I know that you've got a co- about two or three years on me, but I know yeah. we were freshmen at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I started yeah. college a little later than everybody else did. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I recently just did an interview with a mutual friend of ours who – him and I are the same age. Mm-hmm. But, but because he's a mutual friend, you came up because you know, I told him I was about to do your podcast. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So Nicholas is part of a podcast as well called the pop culture roulette, which you've heard the ads. If you're a faithful listener to the eighties flick flashback podcast, but uh, for those that aren't tell us a little bit about pop culture roulette. So um, it's, it's me and two of my friends and we, uh, we just once a week we get together and we just talk about all the, the pop culture news that we find interesting um, or, or anything. Basically it's just an excuse for the three of us to talk about something and and if we want to talk about it we will classify it as pop culture so we can talk about it right right so uh you know what sports pop culture there now we can talk about sports <laughs> whatever is popular at the moment for the week so, whether it, whether it falls in one of those categories so we uh we recently just did uh, a month for october where we did daily content for for every day of october for halloween mm-hmm um, because we were, we're related to a, another podcast called Media Pod Smash. And so between the two of us, we hit 31 days wow. of, of either a new podcast or a new video of mm-hmm. something. And that was, that was a lot of work, but that's, <laughs> it was fun. It was a lot of fun. So I, yeah. did, I did some reviews for some 80s movies and, and uh, you know, but I'm, I'm glad to finally get to one that's actually good. Um <laughs> Well, cool. Well, let's talk about Lethal Weapon. So you know the drill. So when did you see Lethal Weapon for the very first time? All right. Um, I've been thinking of because I knew this question was coming. <laughs> um, so I, I actually, um, you know, I wrote down some notes. I don't remember when I saw it for the first time. I know yeah. I would have rented it. I right. don't think I rented it until I was in high school. So I'm not sure I saw it until like the first two, maybe three were out. Okay. Yeah. I distinctly remember going to see the fourth one in the theaters, though. Right. Right. So somewhere before the fourth one happened, I had seen the other three. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely. I mean, because I remember in high school, me and a friend of mine would go to the either Blockbuster or whatever the family video store in town was, mm-hmm. and rent a couple movies, and just you know that was our Friday or Saturday night. Oh yeah. So oh yeah. I, I know. I know for a fact somewhere in there we would have done a lethal weapon series because we that this is the kind of movie that would have been right up our alley for that. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. Getting movies for the weekend. I mean, the video rental store, any video rental store, not, you know, blockbuster Hollywood video, like you said, the family, whatever the local uh, video yeah. store was on a Friday night, that was the place to be. And you had to get there early enough to get the new releases before they were all gone. And, or you, sometimes we'd wait till like Saturday and we'd try to go to the wherever the cart was where the returns were first coming in, like hot, yeah. hot, hot off the drop off box and uh, try to see what was what had just come in and uh, try to get that for Saturday night and Sunday. Well, I don't remember if you were ever part of one of the group that uh, would, you know, because I know it was definitely more the people who lived in my house when we were <laughs> down from campus. Well, yeah. we would go oh, okay, to either yeah. Hollywood video or Blockbuster 
Right. And we would have a contest to see who could rent the best movie based solely off the cover. Oh, you no, I don't remember that. Yeah. You weren't allowed to read the description. You had to pick based on the cover. Oh, and man. Cover alone. <laughs> um, oh, we saw some clunkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, you fell, fell for that marketing. Yeah, I, but I believe it. I remember there were some video, and I can't remember which video stores it were, but these are probably more like little mom and pop places earlier before Blockbuster and Hollywood, you know, kind of became, you know, the end all be all of video rental stores. But there were some places where all you got was the cover. Like there was no back, oh, like whatever, okay. whatever they gave you, you know, you just, okay. you only, it's only, it's all, it's all the, only, you could only see the front. And so, uh, so yeah, that, that makes it tough. I'm trying to think of what place that was. There was some place I, when you said that it like sparked that memory of there was some video store where it was like, it might've been one of those like little places, like some of the convenience stores, they would have just like a circular rack with just a couple of titles on them. I remember going to Kroger yeah. to rent movies. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I I don't remember going to the library as much as, as you used to. Yeah. But I do remember the, cause I don't remember the library in my, in where I grew up having, the level of movies that like apparently yours did uh, the library I was talking about was on a military base and it was a pretty big size military base. So that, and that was the only place I ever saw videos on a library until I was like, maybe like, no, probably 20 years ago. Now uh, when, when I was getting married, when we lived, uh, my wife and I lived the library there. And by that point it was DVDs. They still had some VHSs, but it was more of a DVD collection. Um, and so yeah, I would still I was still checking out DVDs even back then because it was cheaper than going to you know blockbuster and places like that. Oh, but absolutely. But yeah, uh, so yeah, so uh, back to the, back to topic. <laughs> so Leith, I, I'm like you. I don't remember when I saw Lethal Weapon for the first time, but it's one of those movies where I don't remember not ever knowing about Lethal Weapon. It's like I've seen it so many times; it's kind of ingrained into my being. But I, what I do remember is I know I I'm pretty sure I did not see this in the theater. I must have seen it. We either must have rented it or it was on cable, but it was one of the very first VHS movies that I ever, we ever bought. So I remember when we bought our, I remember when we bought a VCR for the first time and just, you know, Oh my gosh, I have a VCR now. And so uh, at the same military base where we had the library, they had a store there and that was the first place I ever saw like VHS movies for sale. And they had to have been like 30, they might have been like closer to 40 bucks back then. Oh yeah. But I remember the I, the two I remember I don't I don't remember which one I got first, but the first two we bought was Lethal Weapon and Good Morning Vietnam, which both came out in 87. So, this had to have been like 88, 89 when when I got them. So, but once I bought it, I mean, it it and of course we bought two movies, so what movies am I going to watch over and over again but those two movies? Yeah, uh, well that's when 89, when Batman came out, that's why I think I watched Batman as much yeah. as I did. Cause I was one of the, the movies that my parents bought for me on VHS. And mm-hmm. I, I think I wore that tape out. Yeah. I want to say that was one of the first, and I'm, I may totally be getting this, you know, one of those memories that just, you don't remember as well. So kind of, it, it shifts to what you want it to be. But I, I want to say like Batman was the first VHS movie I saw like under 20 bucks or like 1995. And that was like super cheap when it first came out. Uh, and I think it came out around Christmas because it was a summer movie and if I'm memory, sure they were probably, they're pushing it for a holiday release. I'm sure. If memory serves, that was one of my big Christmas presents that year. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I might have got it from yeah, my birthday's in November. So if I didn't get it for my birthday, I might have got it for Christmas that year too. So yeah. no, and now that you say it came out, it reminded me that Lethal Weapon came out in eighty seven. I was nine. There's <laughs> very little chance that my parents let now I know the first rated R movie I saw was Running Man, and I definitely saw that at the age when I shouldn't have seen Running Man. <laughs> So I know dad had a tendency to let me watch movies that were action oriented mm-hmm. that were of or the R variety yeah. at a much, at a much younger age than I probably should have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Same. So, yeah. I was the same way. Like I, this is funny. Me and me and Laramie were actually talking about this the other day. Um, the first R rated movie I remember seeing on V on V like a VCR, we rented the Terminator because my dad was a huge Schwarzenegger fan. But this was like a Friday night, whole family, me and my sister watching the Terminator in our living room, like family movie night with Terminator. And I remember having to like my parents, you know, you know, laying on the floor with a pillow, like put the pillow over your head for this scene or, you know, things of that nature. And Witness was another one with Harrison Ford, with big Harrison Ford fans. And that's, you know, I'm guessing there's the one scene in Witness that they were like, cover up your eyes. Exactly. Exactly. Go to the other room. Go to the other room. You know, sometimes it was cover your sometimes it was cover your head and sometimes get out of the room. We'll call you when you can come back in. (laughs) So. So, yeah, but my dad was the same. I remember like as I got older, this is probably like maybe like early 90s when Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, when they became kind of the uh, the main action hero guys. Uh, I remember going to see a couple of those movies in the theater with my dad. He would take me to those, those movies and see them. So those would have been the ones that my friend and I were renting every Friday night. (laughs) Like how many Van Damme movies can we get that we haven't seen yet? Right. Right. Yeah. He was cranking them out there for a while. So, so yeah. So uh, when was the last time you saw lethal weapon before watching it for the podcast? Oh, um, all the way through anyway. Jeez, and not watching it for the podcast, just watching it in general. Yeah. Fifteen years ago, ten. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No. uh, Yeah. Because all right, technically, I own all four movies on DVD. Mm -hmm. Technically, (laughs) with the air quotes that they can't see because it's a podcast. Well, yeah. Um, a friend of mine worked for Motorola and got sent to China a number of times. Okay. Um, and they have these markets in China where they have all of their DVDs just for sale mm-hmm. and they were, they're stupid cheap. And he knew yeah. that I love the Lethal Weapon series. So he bought me the four movie box set. Oh, nice. For like $4. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. Yeah. They are not legal copies. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are definitely pirate copies, but <laughs> they work. So yeah. Yeah. I look, I bought a, uh, you know, jumping subjects again, but and this has been 20 years ago, at least 20 years ago now, um, when eBay was like the place where you bought everything. Uh, I bought the, the six star Wars movies, episodes one through six, uh, DVD. And it was like maybe 20 bucks. I mean, it was like, it was dirt cheap because they know they're, they're running for like 60, 70, but now they're a hundred bucks now, but even right. back then on DVD, they were like 60, 70 bucks. And I got it for like, I mean, it had to have been 20 or under 20. And I just clicked, you know, buy now. I'm getting it. I don't care. It came from, I don't know which Asian country it came from, but it came in very sketchy packaging. <laughs> and they all work. They all have all the menus and stuff. But when I play them, 
I can, I have to select the English audio. And when all the alien subtitles come on, I have to turn on the English subtitles because they don't come up by themselves. So, but I still, I still have it. Uh, and yeah. like I said, it has all six movies and they're, you know, good quality. I, I don't know if they're pirated, but it's just, it, it wasn't the, the uh, six disc set I saw at Best Buy. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, no, that's definitely not the four disc set that I have. <laughs> I, it's, it's, uh, it's fun reading the descriptions on the Chinese movies. Uh, oh, I bet. They're not even close. Sometimes it's not even the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, so, it's, yeah. It's, it's been a while. I mean, I think because of the Lethal Weapon TV series, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't watched it. I hadn't watched it. I meant to watch the movies again, but I just, I got into that series and I just didn't get around to it. Yeah. Yeah. Rewa- rewatching it for the podcast, I was like, all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to stop myself from watching the other one so I didn't. I didn't accidentally talk about things yeah. that we weren't getting to. Yeah, I have to do that too. I'm the same way because that's that's thing, especially with this one. Because usually when I watch the first one, I'm gonna go ahead and watch at least the first three. I haven't seen the fourth one as much as the first three. Correct. Um, but I definitely definitely one and two. So I know I watched this one maybe maybe a year ago. It might have been within the year because I I we did this one for um, another podcast. Totally rad Christmas with uh, Jerry D. Okay, he, he asked me to come on and do that one, and so I watched it for that. And that was the first time I'd seen it, probably in less than less than a decade. Because I, I remember, I remember at one point within the last twelve years, I know for sure I was homesick uh, from work, and I think HBO had all four of the Lethal Weapons on or whatever, and so I was like. I had a doctor's note. I was going to be out of work, out of work for like three or four days. So I was like, I'm just going to watch the weapon movies while I'm laying up in bed, you know, sipping on, <laughs> sipping on chicken broth and trying to keep my nose from running all day. And Absolutely. so, uh, so yeah, so that was, that was the last time I'd watched them all the way through. But once again, I've seen this many, so many times that I used to have, which I've talked about this before when I had a, you, know, you may remember I had a pretty extensive, I, I think when college first started, I had an extensive VHS collection because you guys used to come, to my dorm room and yes. and and borrow that, that my is, my VHSs. That is all coming back to me now. <laughs> yeah, wow, I had completely forgotten about that. But yeah, yeah. but then I had you, yeah. Go ahead. Lived in the dorms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's because we were both upstairs in the dorms that first semester, right? I think so. I roomed with I roomed with Robbie the the second half of first semester. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, I was I was in Robbie's room the first year. And then it all gets kind of fuzzy after that. I know I, yeah, anyway, that other people on the podcast aren't gonna know who we're talking about. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> but in the dorms, but but I, I so saying that I had the VHS collection, then it, it ballooned into DVDs, and I had a very extensive DVD collection, but then when Blu-rays came out, I just I sold all my v, my DVDs. Like I'm gonna get everything on Blu-ray now. But a lot of the stuff that I had on DVD, the they didn't transfer to they didn't have the same copies or the same features as the uh, Blu-ray. So I used to have the director's cut of Lethal Weapon. Okay. And so, which I've seen all the deleted scenes and I've watched the director's cut. So going back and watching it now, there are certain things like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm for, they don't have this one scene or, you know, they took this one part out. So 
so that was since kind have, of interesting. Since I only have the Chinese bootlegs, <laughs> um, I don't think I have the director's cut. But you probably I don't. Can't, I don't know what the the words on the the disc say. So <laughs> thankfully, it's in, the movie's in English, so I have no problem watching it. But. Right, right, right. Well, you'll have the director's cut if they introduce Riggs three different times at the beginning of the movie. Nope, I don't have the director's yeah. cut. Then. Yeah. So they they could they couldn't figure out well and and Donner has said and we're jumping into trivia but Donner said that that's not really a true director's cut because that's not the cut that he would have made it's just a longer version with all the deleted scenes put in but that was the the term quote unquote the term back in the day they wouldn't call it uncut they would call it a director's cut which was just we're going to put all the deleted scenes back in that's how they tried to talk us into buying DVDs after we had bought everything on VHS exactly. Exactly. They're like, look at all the director's cuts. And we're all like, <laughs> we were all stupid enough to go, oh, okay. Yeah. I want to see all the scenes that weren't good enough to be put in the movie in the first place. So, yeah. Speaking of DVD, my DVD collection downstairs, I have three shelves, like, mm-hmm. stand, you know, floor, not floor to ceiling, but close. Right. Like, screwed onto the wall downstairs in the basement. And it's almost all completely full. Yeah. I, and I'm, I have them. Except for the Marvel stuff and the Disney stuff, everything is alphabetized. Yeah, yeah. And I almost never go down in the basement. So everything, almost every movie I watch, is, I was like, I'm just, I'm going to stream it. I mean, I could go, <laughs> I could take the five seconds to walk downstairs, but uh, right. I'll just, I'll watch it on HBO. <laughs> right. And now these messages. <sighs> What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. So let's go ahead and jump right into story origin and pre-production. So uh, you know much about how this movie got made, or are you just... Not really. I mean, I know that Shane Black had a lot to do with the writing of it. Yeah, yeah. But and but other than that, I don't. Really, that's. I mean, obviously Shane Black it has Christmas involved. I mean, yeah, yeah. All of his movies have Christmas involved in some way. And very few of them are actually Christmas movies, but they have Christmas in them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, speaking of Mr. Black, he was a recent UCLA graduate when he wrote the screenplay in the mid in mid nineteen eighty five. He stated that his intention was to do an urban Western inspired by Dirty Harry, where a violent character reviled for what he did, what he is capable of, the things he believed in, is eventually recruited for being the one that could solve the problem. The protagonist would be every man policeman, he said, guys shuffling in a town like Los Angeles searching for something noble as justice when they're just guys in washed and worn suits seeking a paycheck. According to Black, his original first draft of the script was very different and much darker than the final film. It was 140 pages long, and both the plot and characters were different. The action scenes were also much bigger. The ending of the script contained a chase scene with helicopters and a trailer truck full of cocaine exploding over Hollywood Hills with cocaine snowing over the Hollywood sign. Picture that one for the end of the movie. 
but Black hated the first draft and initially threw it away, but he later picked it up again and rewrote it into the new drafts that were eventually used for filming. So his agent sent the Lethal Weapon script to various studios being rejected before Warner Brothers executive Mark Canton took a liking to it. Canton brought along producer Joel Silver, who loved the story and worked with Black to further develop the script. Director Richard Donner also brought in writer Jeffrey Boehm to do some uncredited rewrites on Black's script after he found parts of it to be too dark. Boehm mostly added some more humor into the script and later did a complete rewrite of Shane Black and Warren Murphy's rejected script for the second film. He also wrote the script for the third film as an unused draft for the fourth film. So they all had some some connections with the sequels as well. So, But the script was purchased for $250,000 and studio production executives offered it to director Richard Donner, who also loved it. But Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock himself, was one of the choices considered for directing, but he did not feel comfortable doing action films as he was working on Three Men, a ba- Three Men and a Baby at the time. So with those key elements in place, the search began for the right combination of actors to play Riggs and Murtaugh. So uh, definitely had a, an interesting origin story. I just see Leonard Nimoy directed. That would have been... Probably a very different movie. Oh, very different. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like I said, he he knew he wasn't the right choice for it. So, you know, at least he was smart enough to see that. And I think they said he had done Star Trek three and four, which I wouldn't call them action movies. I mean, they, I guess you would say they had some kind of some action sequences, but they're much more drama movies. Yeah, Star and Trek so, is definitely more drama or more character driven than yeah, Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, exactly. So, and then he made Three Men and a Baby that coincidentally actually made more money than Lethal Weapon did in 1987. Interesting. But it's also a family movie. They sold more tickets. You know, back then, yeah. PG was the was the uh, box office. Well, and Steve, and Steve Gutenberg, you just can't go wrong with. <laughs> yeah, Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted Danson. I mean, come on. One of those two movies I definitely saw in in the theaters, or I don't know if I saw in the theaters, but I definitely saw before I saw this one. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm. I know I saw Three Men and a Baby in the theater, and we'll get to that eventually at some point when I cover Three Men and a Baby. But so let's jump into casting. So of course, Mel Gibson, we know. But also Bruce Willis was considered. Oh, let me start over. So Mel Gibson and Bruce Willis were considered for each other's roles in Lethal Weapon and in Die Hard, and both movies were produced by Joel Silver. Willis was offered the role of Martin Riggs, but turned it down. A year later, he did Die Hard. Gibson was considered to play John McClane, along with Harrison Ford, Sylvester Stallone, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they all turned it down. Coincidentally, the script for Die Hard with a Vengeance was briefly considered to be filmed as a Lethal Weapon sequel. So. Die Hard and Lethal Weapon are even more linked <laughs> than we realize. You know, honestly, like I, I could see Bruce Willis now doing Lethal Weapon. I don't know if Bruce Willis then could have done Lethal Weapon. No, no. I can see. I could see Mel Gibson doing Die Hard, though. I mean, it's. I don't. It would have been a slightly different film, but like, yeah, I think, you know, yeah. they're so different in their approaches. So yeah. I it, it's it's like I could see it, but I don't know if I would enjoy either one as much as I do. No, I definitely think the iconic status that both of those movies have are because of who did each of them. Oh, and yeah. They, had they been reversed, I think it would just be, 
I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it would they they wouldn't have st- stood the test of time that they've done now or had the franchises they've had. Also, also, I could see that being true. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So Mel Gibson was invited by Richard Donner as he was interested in working with the actor after he saw Lady Hawk. Casting director Marion Daltrey first suggested teaming Gibson with Danny Glover, given Murtaugh had no set ethnicity in the script. She arranged for Gibson to fly in from his home in Sydney, Australia, while Glover was flown in from Chicago, where he was appearing in a play to read through the script. So according to Donner, it took about two hours. And by the time they were done, he was in seventh heaven. He said they found their innuendos. They found laughter where I never saw it. They found tears where they didn't know existed before. And most importantly, they found a relationship all in just one reading. So if you ask me about casting, it was magical, just total dynamite. And that's Donner talking about Gibson and Glover meeting for the first time. We could talk about other people taking these roles. Can we, I guess we kind of, kind of did, but I, I mean, they're, they're Martin and they're Martin and Riggs. There's no, there's nobody else that could play those roles. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's really hard now. I mean, I'm sure you'll get to it at some point when we talk about the Lethal Weapon series. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did thoroughly enjoy uh, Damon Wayans um, as as Martin or as Murtaugh. As Murtaugh. Mm-hmm. The other guy, the guy who played Riggs, um, just never really like. I mean, I enjoyed the series, but not yeah, as much I, as the movies. Yeah. I um, enjoyed the first season. They had two seasons with him, right? Two seasons with Clayne Crawford and then a right. third season with Sean Williams. Guy. Yeah. I didn't watch. I think I watched one episode of the third season. But it was a, you might as well have retitled it like something else. It was a <laughs> entirely different. I mean, it was every bit as enjoyable because Sean Williams Scott is a great actor, but right, it, right. it was like a wholly different show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Damon Wayans was Murtaugh, I thought was pretty good. So now I, I now I can see him doing it. Mm-hmm. where where like Danny Glover but like rewatching the movie for the first time in a long time like now it's like it's hard to see like now I'm back to like man Danny Glover just he brings a level of yeah yeah of, you know I guess gravitas for lack of a better word mm-hmm. to that that role that that you know very few other people could have yeah what I think is interesting about the dynamic and we've seen Everyone's tried to copy this for so many for so many years, you know, for decades now. So to go back and see this kind of origin of that odd couple cops partnership, you know, thing that we see, what's really cool about it is, and and we talked about Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy being more of a character driven director, but these are complex characters. And I don't think we had seen that even as much in an action film either, where, you know, Riggs had a really dark backstory and then Mark Murtaugh has his family and, you know, they are these contradicting lifestyles that still have to work together. And so, but I think like you said, like, of course, Mel Gibson, nobody plays crazy like Mel Gibson. We won't get into his, you know, his own you know his own personal life but well and and danny glover and well even both of them kind of brought something to the role where without having to give too much backstory or just quickly kind of touching on it enough that you knew they both were like ex-military and Mm -hmm. but they just they were able to kind of convey a lot without well like joking with each other or just oh yeah without, without having to spend like 
you know, we don't have to have an hour of origin on each per, on each character. Right. You know, right. We're able to get right into it and it felt natural. Yeah. Which yeah. Says a lot to the you know, the ability of both of their being, you know, incredible actors. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, with Glover just being that, the father figure, he just, he, he made that believable where he wasn't just a cop. He wasn't just a, a detective. Like, there was more to him than just the work that he did. And so, you know, and credit that to the script and the direction. I mean, it's not, it's not all just them, but they, oh, well, they, yeah. em, they embodied it very well. So one thing I thought was really interesting was that Mel Gibson was only 30 when the movie was filmed, although his character Riggs was supposed to be 38. Murtaugh is 50 years old in the movie, but Danny Glover was only 40 in 1986. So okay. <laughs> so let that sink in because we're a couple of you know guys in our 40s yeah, and yeah. you know danny glover was younger than us when he made lethal weapon well not I, I, he's got a i'm only 43 so he's got a so he had a couple years on me if we, yeah not, not, not by much yeah 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 pretty, I'm not... pretty, pretty close to the same age there but yeah 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 so his 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 line, the one famous line that I can't repeat. Uh, right. I'm, I'm getting too old for this. Right. Um, it's funny now. Like at the time, you're like, "Oh man, Danny Glover is old," and now you're like, <laughs> yeah. "Dude, like, you're I'm not watching, that old." <laughs> yeah, I'm watching it now. I'm just going, "You're really not that old." Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you think? Well, I know he's playing someone that's fifty. Which I mean, I'm getting closer to that every year. But even now, think. But even like. 50, I guess, yeah, even as a kid, 50 was old, <laughs> but it's like, you think about retiring, like, I guess now at my age now, I know most people don't retire until they're in their sixties. So it's not like he was like 63 about to retire. I mean, he was 50, right. but I guess as a police officer, you probably don't want to be, you know, doing the kind of detective work he was doing in his later, late fifties. So, oh yeah, no, but yeah, no, I do. I do think that's, I mean, as a kid, you know, when, when you're in high school, you're like, man, 40 is so old. Now that mm-hmm. I am 43, you're like, 40 is not that old. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, my body tells me more well, than I wanted to, that I'm not as young as I used to be, but. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the crucial role of Joshua. Uh, Gary Busey asked for a chance to read for the part. You know, he was an established star since his Academy Award nominated performance in the Buddy Holly story. Busey had not auditioned for a film in years. He said he had butterflies. He had never played a bad guy. No one had seen him since he had lost like 60 pounds and got back into shape. But he decided to take the initiative and and have the opportunity to work with Richard Donner, Joel Silver, Mel Gibson, and Danny Glover. So in his E! True Hollywood Story biography, Busey says he was hired to play Joshua because they were looking for someone big and menacing enough to be a believable foe for Gibson. Busey also credits the film for reviving his failing film career, which is very true because he really, he had, I mean, not that he had a huge career, but he, he was definitely more recognizable and had a name. I guess his next biggest movie was what point break in early nineties. I was trying to remember if point break was him or Nolte, but yeah, that was Busey. Yeah. That was was Busey. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Keanu. Yeah. Keanu and Busey and point break. Because I love Point Break. That, oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I haven't seen it in a while, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, that, and that probably would have been my first, one of my first experiences with 
knowing that Busey was somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, going back and watching it, you kind of forget that, that Busey, Busey is not necessarily forget that he's in the movie because he does have such a big role, but right. like, they don't really ever focus on him. So Yeah, yeah. He's not the big bad, so, you, you know, he's the muscle, so he's not... Yeah, I mean McAllister is the is is the is the big bad, I guess you'd say. But even he's not. But to me, he's not as remember. He's not as memorable as Mr. Joshua. But no. of course, the scene with the the lighter under his arm is probably, you yeah. know, what kind of gets etched in your memory. Yeah. What's funny about McAllister, and I don't. You probably have his his real name. Yeah. Um, Mitchell when Ryan. I thought, or when I see it now, all I can think of is Dharma and Greg. Okay, because he was the, he was the fa- he was Greg's father on Dharma and Greg. Okay, kind of like when I watch RoboCop, all I see is Red Foreman. Not, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Not Boniker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, wait, that he's he's the you know your bumbling idiot dad. What <laughs> now, now? he's a you know heroin dealer. What's going oh, on? Oh yeah, here? oh yeah. He played a great bad guy in the eighties. Yeah. So, but yeah. So you mentioned General Peter McAllister. His, the actor's name is Mitchell Ryan. Uh, so he had a semi-study television career. He's remembered for several supporting film roles, including Judge Dredd in 1995. He was actually Michael Myers' nemesis in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers in 95 as well. He was in Liar Liar in 97 with Jim Carrey. And he was Harrison Ford's chief out to get Brad Pitt in The Devil's Own in 97. So he had a pretty good string there in 97. Probably from his work on Dharma and Greg. Probably. <laughs> I don't even remember when Dharma and Greg come out. I just remember I watched that show. A yeah, lot. that was, that had to been, I think that was in the 90s. That was like early 90s, I think. Yeah, I, it's so hard to keep everything straight with when what came out. <laughs> yeah, decades kind of bl- kind of blend together some when you get to be our age, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Getting too so. old for that one. <laughs> so we got Tom Atkins played Michael Hunsucker, who was the father that, you know, uh, Murtaugh's yeah. uh, friend. So Tom appeared in two films for director John Carpenter, uh, Nick Castle in the spooky ghost film, The Fog from 1980, and Remy in the fantastic futuristic sci-fi action cult film Escape from New York in 81. Atkins had a nice small role as a disapproving and overbearing father in the warp in the wraparound segments of the immensely enjoyable fright feature anthology creep show in 1982. And then what I remembered him from just recently, he also played the flawed Dr. Daniel Chalice and the often maligned Halloween three season of the witch from 1982. Which I also need to watch because you don't, I, you, you really don't. You really, I, that's what I, <laughs> The only reason I want to watch it is because it is so maligned. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, I know it's not going to be good, but at the same time, like everybody keeps telling me it's that yeah. bad, and I'm like, can it be that it's, bad? I would say it's. I, I'm gonna put it in somewhat the same category as Sleepaway Camp, oh. in the sense of see it to say that you've seen it but then know that you never have to see it again. I feel uh, that way about Sleepaway Camp because I, watch, I watched because of you. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I finally got to say I saw it. but Right. Not really glad you did, though, right? 
No, it wasn't. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't like the worst movie I've ever seen. No, no. But yeah, I mean, Season of the Witch, like I said, if, if you know the podcast, Ron and I were supposed to do that for this past year's Halloween movie. And we both watched it and was like, I just said, I, I just don't I don't want to talk about this movie. I mean, and it's it it has some interesting elements to it, but it's yeah, it. it yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Darlene Love as Trish Murtaugh. Uh, which I did not realize this until like when I watched it a few years ago, right around Christmas, actually, I forgot about when I watched it probably like three, maybe four years ago, you know, when everybody was talking about Die Hard being a Christmas movie, I was like, I'm going to go back and watch Youth Weapon because I know that's in Christmas as well. But Darlene Love was a singer whose biggest hit was uh, Baby, Please Come Home for Christmas. And I did not realize that she is the person playing Murtaugh's wife until her name popped up in the credits. And I was like, wait a minute, why do I know that name Darlene love? And I looked it up. I was like, Oh, that's how I know the name Darlene love. Cause she was a singer. So I don't think I knew that until just right now <laughs> <laughs> that I'm doing my job. Uh, so she was also one of David Letterman's favorite. Yeah. She's one of David Letterman's favorite singers on the final live show before Christmas. She appeared on late show with David Letterman to sing her classic Christmas baby, please come home. And one memorable, memorable appearance. Her rendition was broadcast live to us troops stationed overseas letterman has said it's just not christmas without darlene love so once again another reason why this is a christmas movie i just want to reiterate that so but amazingly the lethal weapon movies are her only acting credits huh which is surprising because she's not bad like yeah exactly you would think that she'd be you know she's not like like there's some uh musicians that try to act where you're like oh yeah Oh yeah, I know why. I know why your role is very small in that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I thought she was great. So I mean, I even as a kid, I was like, oh, she's like a for she's a for real actress. Like she's someone that you know should be doing you know other movies. But I I never saw her in anything else. So so the last uh, cast member we'll talk about. Oh, no, I got two more. So uh, one more cast member is Steve Kahn as Captain Ed Murphy. And every time I've seen him. I always think that that's director Steve Don. I mean, that, that's the director, Richard Donner. He has appeared in 14 films directed by his cousin, Richard Donner. So that's why I always think it's Richard Donner because it's his cousin. But he was in Superman in 1978, Inside Moves in 1980, The Toy in 1982, Lethal Weapon, as we said. He's in Scrooge in 88, Lethal Weapon 2 in 89, Radio Flyer in 92, Lethal Weapon 3 in 92 maverick in 94 assassins in 95 conspiracy theory in 97 lethal weapon 4 in 98 timeline in 2003 and 16 blocks in 2006 okay first of all i did not realize that richard donner had directed all those movies (laughs) when i first went through that list i didn't realize that either um he did conspiracy theory huh yeah yeah and him and mel gibson back again He's the captain, but he has a very, him and Richard Donner, I mean, could pass as brothers. They look a lot alike. So, okay. And then the last person we'll mention in the cast is Mary Ellen Trainer as Dr. Stephanie Wood. She has a kind of a blink and miss it role. She's the psychiatrist, but she has appeared in many feature films in the 80s. Notable characters include Elaine, the kidnapped sister of Kathleen Turner, and the catalyst for the entire plot of Romancing the Stone in 1984. She has played Dr. Stephanie Woods in all four Lethal Weapon movies, but 
Most people know her as Mrs. Walsh, Mikey and Brand's mom in the Goonies in 1985. That's where I knew her from. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Oh. And then, of course, we got to have one more Die Hard connection because she was also news reporter Gail Wallens in Die Hard in 1988. Okay. But yeah. yeah, but she'll always be, you know, Mikey and Brand's mom in Goonies to me. Yes. Okay. Yep, that makes sense. I intend normally when I watch a movie, I I sit down with IMDb and I read all yeah. the trivia yep. and I I'm the same way. Stuff. Yeah. And I knew for this I was like I tried not to so that I didn't <laughs> um I didn't uh make a fool of myself and try to talk over you too much. Oh, no, it's fine. No, you're good. No, Ron does that all the time. He'll 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 pull up some of the trivia stuff too, so but it doesn't bother me, so so next time, know that you have you have full reign to add your own trivia. So okay, all right. <laughs> so uh, so, are you big fan? Let's we kind of go back a little bit. Are you big fans of Gibson uh, and uh, Glover or I mean, DC? I would say that I'm. I mean, I think I've seen all, almost everything that Mel Gibson's done. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. I mean, I know there's a few outliers here or there but i mean obviously when it comes to mel gibson you've got the lethal weapon series mm-hmm. um but then i remember you know conspiracy theory and yeah. payback yeah payback payback ransom is one of his um, one of my favorites right. of his and then you know obviously you can't go too far from mel gibson without talking about braveheart yeah oh yeah i mean you know out of the patriot like i mean he's done so much good now Obviously, he he's battled his demons, mm-hmm. um, and and some unfortunately for him, he's done some of it publicly. Right, right. But um, you know, and and so you know, because he has uh, some pretty strong beliefs, I know he rubs people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of of, uh, of Mel Gibson um danny glover like i'm i'm not like i don't follow his career as closely as other people but right. you know like if, if danny glover's in the movie i'm not like oh turn that off i'm like okay all right <laughs> uh, yeah know. he hasn't had and, the yet he hasn't had quite the career that gibson had for sure and, but, and then you get to gary Busey. that's just a whole nother bag of i don't yeah. know like <laughs> that's i a mean different- he had a he yeah. had a run in in the late eighties, nineties, where he was doing a lot of really good stuff, and like you said, he had been nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. But now he's doing what Gary Busey Animal Court or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah he, he he went off the deep end and into crazy town. And- yeah, I, I want to say if and, and and if you're a listener and I get this completely wrong, please feel free to send us a, a message because I'm I'm totally. This is totally not looked up on Google. I'm, I'm totally shooting from it. I want to say in like either the mid or to late nineties, didn't he have like a really bad motorcycle accident and had some brain damage? Yes. Or had some, he had some issues go on. So I think some of that affected him af- after that point, like he's done really well. I'm not saying that he's, I mean, yeah. he's a funk, you know, he he's, he's doing for the, for the accident he was in, he's doing amazingly well, but it was obvious that he couldn't, be the actor that he was before if memory serves i think drugs and alcohol played a part of that too part of that you know yeah they didn't help the situation so exactly yeah but i mean it's kind of like charlie sheen i mean drugs and alcohol and other various things and you head off into crazy town 
mm-hmm. and if you get you get too far into crazy town sometimes it's 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 hard to come back and now these messages comic books have been around for almost a century and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever. Like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gag Me With The Spoon, The Other Half Of The Battle, and Chant With The Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Let's move on to iconic scenes. So when you close your eyes and think about Lethal Weapon... What are the scenes that immediately come to mind? The rooftop. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That, for me, that's the first. That's the first thing I remember. And um, do you want to jump? Do you? <laughs> Let's yeah. jump. Yeah. Right. And then and then you know handcuffs them and then jumps. Um, mm-hmm. The coke buy is is a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm a cop. No, you're not. That's fake. And then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then obviously the big, you know, hand to hand combat fight scene at the end, you know, in, in Murtaugh's yard. I mean, mm-hmm. those for me, I mean, but that, that roof scene, that's when I think leave the weapon of all of them, that's one of the first thing that, that come to mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that scene sticks with me. Like just the idea that, that Murtaugh, not Murtaugh, Riggs was like, I'm going to get this guy off the roof and I'm going to make him jump, you know, mm-hmm. kind of. Well, because it, I think it it was so unexpected, especially then. Like, I mean, once again, this is this is a movie that's been copied so many times. If you, once again, watching it as a someone younger than us, they would see that and be like, "Oh, well, I've seen that." You know, we've we've seen Crazy Cop before, but this was such a groundbreaking moment that, like, who would have thought that a cop would take another person down off? You know, would jump into a bag at the yeah. bottom you know well and i mean you can correct me because you've done more research but i remember when richard donner passed away earlier this year mm-hmm. um kind of doing some research and reading on him a lot of people were crediting him and lethal weapon with creating the buddy cop genre yeah um and i have a hard time believing that 87 was the first time that somebody put like the mismatched pair of cops together You're right but I mean, I feel like it's probably the one that launched it into the now everybody wants to do. Yeah. 
you know, I think it had been done before, but it hadn't been done as successfully as this. Cause you can even go back to another kind of, well, odd, I'll say odd couple, but they weren't both cops, but go back to 48 hours with Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. You've got once again, two completely opposites having to work together. So that you can go back to that, but them both being police officers, this might, I mean, once again, I, I didn't dig that deep into it, but, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it was the first one, but I do think it was probably the one that was as successful as this one was. Cause it's clearly the one that everybody has copied since it come out. I mean, right. there's still, they're still copying it today. I oh, mean, of course. Yeah. Yeah, whether that and at this point they might not even know they're copying it because they're copying something that got you know, yeah. you're just you're you're five generations down right. from copying it where like you don't even realize you're copying lethal weapon because the thing that you're copied copied lethal weapon. Yeah. Unfortunately it's almost become a trope now because it's been copied so much instead of it just being a good idea. So yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, iconic scenes the the uh the rooftop scene is definitely uh iconic. Um there's a few scenes and I'm, I'm sure it's because I saw it in the trailers over and over again, but the one scene of Mel Gibson towards the end when he's running, when they leave the, the rock club or whatever, and he's running down the street with, you know, after the car um, and like that old chase scene of him trying to follow Mr. Joshua. Um, that, that scene always stands out to me. The, um, the you know, Christmas tree farm. I agree. That's, that's iconic for sure. Those are the big ones. I have other favorite scenes. Let's jump into that. What are what are your favorite scenes outside of those? I mean those those. I mean, there's little little bits where like um, I really enjoyed like as they're like walking like towards the car like the car and he's like, "Let me drive." No, you're not driving. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, just little little bits here or there. That was our um, you know when they're after they've jumped into the pool. Mm-hmm. try to save the guy that they just shoved in the pool oh yeah oh yeah um, and just the way they just the, the way that the two of them interact and like like they go from like danny glover tackling him in the station and not knowing who he is to by the end of the film being like best friends and like yeah. it all yeah. happening over the course of a couple days you mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. like you can really see how fast the two of them really click like it's all i mean obviously they're acting and you know they're you know they're following a script but like you can see, like it felt, it felt genuine. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, 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 another scene I thought I, I, I can't really call it an iconic scene, but it's a scene that I remember standing out, stood out to me. And that's the scene at the beginning when Amanda Hunsaker jumps off the roof, but it's that camera angle of it going where you're seeing the side of the building, almost like her point of view, uh, going down the building. And I remember that being just, it kind of arrested me in a certain way as a kid. Cause you'd seen guys, people fall, but it's always been this, uh, it's usually like a wide shot and you can tell it's like right. a dummy that's falling or whatever. And, uh, and they said that actually she, she, the actress, I think I have it here. Um, yeah. The infamous suicide for the infamous suicide, a large airbag, was hidden beneath a life-size painting of the car and vehicles the woman crashes onto. The painting seamlessly fuses into the real-life location, allowing Donner to focus the shot all the way up to the point Amanda makes contact with the disguised airbag. But the actress was actually the one that did the jump as well. Like She was trained 
with a stunt person on how to do it. So that was actually her that does the jump as well. Okay, so that's why that looks way better than like say the RoboCop scene where that guy gets thrown out of the roof. <laughs> or I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not bashing on Die Hard because it's it's one of no, my no. all time favorite movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that falling scene where Alan Rickman is falling, like you can mm-hmm. tell it's green screen. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, so, for sure. And that one didn't look as real. I, and and now that we're talking about favorite scene, it's not necessarily a favorite scene, but it's a scene that really sticks out. It's one of the first scenes. And it's so weird to me. That's why it sticks out. Is Murtaugh is in the bathtub. Yep. Which is weird enough because, like, what's a 50-year-old man <laughs> doing taking a bath? On first thing in the morning. First yeah. thing in the morning. Um, the entire family comes in to wish him happy birthday. Yes. Which is pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a little scene, and it, it's almost a throwaway. And if you don't, like, it, it wasn't until, like, I watched it the second time mm-hmm. that I that I really caught it. He has a beard. Yep. And the oldest daughter says something about, oh, you're looking a little older. And then the <laughs> next scene, he's just shaved the mustache. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the wife says something about, you know, makes a comment about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, just what, you know. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wow. He, he like, his age really bothered him. turning 50 really seems to bother him in a way that, like, they kind of understate in the movie. Because I mean, he clearly thinks about it the whole time as he keeps saying, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm too old. old for this." But yeah. like, as soon as his daughter was like, "Oh, you're getting a little gray," like he pulled that. Beard oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I'm glad you brought that up because I remember watching it this time, and I probably noticed the last couple of times I watched it. But and it's never really explained. But when I see that beard on him at the beginning, yeah, number one, there's very little gray in it. Like maybe like two or three strands of gray. Like it's not like his whole beard is gray. <clears throat> but it that like has he been on vacation for like a month because it's the most unkempt beard <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like i can understand if he like had a beard but it was like you know a little close shaved and you know look you know neat and clean they could say hey you're making but i mean it looks like he has not taken a bath or <laughs> or or combed his hair for like weeks so i you know i don't i mean i know you have kids i don't um mm-hmm. But I just, I can't imagine a world in which I'd be super thrilled about sitting in a bath, which I, I don't know if I'd ever do anyway, but sitting in a bath, having my entire family come in to sing me happy birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine that that would be something I'd be thrilled about. No, I I don't take baths very often. It's usually, yeah, I don't take baths very often, uh, but I usually lock the door and I, I, I want to be left alone. Like yeah, I I mean, if, I were, if I was to take a bath, <laughs> it would be for the express reason of like, I need to relax. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah. or my muscles are so sore right now. Yep, I that's, need that's, Those are my reasons for taking a bath right there. Yeah. So exactly. So, but yeah, it is, it is, it is a very strange scene. I can't say it I'm like you, it's not a favorite scene, but it's definitely one that sticks out. Uh, it's just so it's so awkward with the rest of the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, and I I'm sure that they did it because they wanted to show him getting ready for the morning and they're celebrating his birthday, and it's less awkward him sitting in a bubble bath than him <laughs> than him standing in a shower. Yeah, yeah, but still mm-hmm. awkward, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and there and as you said, those there's no bubbles in the tub, so all the family sees. Pretty much everything, you know, and I, you know, I, yeah, that, yeah. All right, let's move on. (laughs) 
another one of my favorite scenes, I will say, the introduction of Mur- uh, Murton Riggs when he sees uh, Riggs in the in the station and he sees him pull out his gun. He's like, "It's a gun!" But the look on Gibson's face when he's he's like, "Where? Like where?" You know, it's like that. That is so well done. And it's always been one of my favorite scenes because, like, who's got a gun? It's like, oh, me? I'm the one with the, you know, it's like those facial expressions are so perfect and timed so well in that scene. It's like, hey, Raj, meet your new partner. And so eh, it's a great, that's a great scene. Yeah, that is a good one. That is a good introduction. <clears throat> the desert scene is also one of my favorites where Riggs is off in the distance with a sniper and, you know, all the cars and stuff all kind of meet there in the desert. <clears throat> I've seen that copied so many times now, but that's still one of my favorite kind of like aerial scenes. Um, it's kind of dumb when you think about it, <laughs> when you really think about it though, because you would think that <clears throat> Riggs would know that somebody else is behind him that he, I don't think he, especially being McAllister, like the big bad is the one that's going to find him up there. Right. And then Murtaugh totally by himself with the, with the station wagon and you know it's just i it's it's definitely a setup for an action sequence and you kind of know that now but it's still a cool scene at the beginning but yeah it's uh well it's one of those suspension of disbelief that you have to have for almost every movie yeah yeah you know like yeah like you said like somebody walking in sand isn't gonna sneak up behind uh a trained sniper right but yeah no i mean uh We've you've pretty much covered, or we've covered all of my you know really you know favorite scenes. All right, let's touch a little bit of trivia, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. So a little Easter egg, if you're into Easter eggs in movies, when Murtaugh and Riggs are walking down the street discussing how Murtaugh owes Hunsaker, a movie theater's marquee in the background displays Lost Boys, this year's hit. If you did not know, Richard Donner produced The Lost Boys in 1987. He actually turned down directing Lost Boys to do Lethal Weapon and handed over to Joel Schumacher to direct, and he uh, ended up producing instead. So, if you ever noticed that? Uh, I noticed it this last time. Yeah. That, that it said Lost Boys. I didn't realize all of that, but I did see that it said Lost Boys. Yeah. And then I love, I saw this one a couple years ago. I, I'm like you. Every time I watch a movie, I'm always on IMDb reading the trivia. But this is one of the ones that I remember reading back then that I love. This is the first movie to show a modern cell phone. It was a portable Radio Shack model 171003 launched in 1986, close to the filming of the movie. So huh. I did notice that there was a cell phone in it. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm so used to seeing them now. It didn't like connect that 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 was i mean in 87 that probably blew people's minds oh yeah what is that exactly yeah and it was funny because you know as a kid i probably didn't realize that it was or what we would know now as a cell phone or like a a portable phone wherever they called them back then um because it's not like he's on the he's in the on the overpass he's talking to the to the psychiatrist and you kind of see it but it's not really you know, they don't focus on it enough to really know. And then I think they use it again in the movie. And it's another point where it's like, oh, they, they use the cell phone again. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Back, back when cell phones were like $5 a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I do remember seeing like that type of cell phone in high school uh, at a at a high school football game. And I saw a guy carrying one 
and everybody pretty much knew that he was a drug dealer because only a, a kid in high school that was doing drugs would be carrying that type I of. Don't, I don't cell think phone. I knew anybody in high. I knew people that had the beepers, but I didn't. Know oh yeah, anybody yeah. That had the cell phone. The only people I ever saw with cell phones were like rich businessmen or doctors. Mm-hmm. Or oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the until I was in college, the concept of having a cell yeah. phone was like. That, that you got to be rich for that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, back to the movie. You were, yeah. talking, about, you were talking about trivia with Lost Boys. I caught something this time that I did actually research. Um, Mel Gibson is talking about his time in the service. Right. Right. Doing something. And he says something about Air America. He does. Yep. And I was like, wait a minute. Didn't they make a movie called Air America? <laughs> they did. With him? Yeah. And I was like, it, I don't know if it didn't say the two of them were a hundred percent related, but like the version of the story that he was telling and the version of the movie are not that far off from each other. Right. Right. So, you know, they're not necessarily like in the same universe, but they are like, clearly they got the idea. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I don't have that one down, but I, I do. Yeah. Air America, when he said it, cause the air America movie, I, that was a movie I did see in the theater. That was a, for for all of you that want to go back and see a young Robert Downey Jr. That was uh, Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. together in that movie. It wasn't very good from what I remember, and I can't find it anywhere to rewatch it. Well, uh, my memory of it as well. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't remember the plot to know how close it was. I think they were like smuggling drugs on the plane, and but anyway, but yeah, it definitely. I don't know which came first. The, if it's a real thing or that he mentions, or if it was something yeah. he put in the script that somebody else kind of took off with. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Cause I mean, it was, I mean, I remember air America was, I don't remember if they were military struggling, smuggling drugs or they were just smuggling drugs, but it was set yeah. in Vietnam. It was set yeah. in the Vietnam era. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is the era that Mel Gibson was talking about. And I was like, that's just too much of a coincidence not to have <laughs> something to do with, you know, yeah, yeah. But somebody got the idea. They saw it and was like, "That's actually a pretty good idea. Let's get him to do it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to say like the Air America movie was supposed to be m- much more of a comedy too, which I yeah. think is why it wasn't as good because it was trying to be, it tried to be really funny and then have like serious action and a serious plot, and they didn't really mer, it didn't blend very well together. If, if memory serves me correctly, so. Uh, have, it's been a long time since I've seen that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about box office and critical reception. We'll wrap this one up. So released on March 6th, 1987, Lethal Weapon was number one at the box office for three weeks before Blind Date with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger took over the top spot. It is widely considered to be one of the best buddy cop films of all time, influencing numerous buddy cop films that followed, such as Hot Fuzz, Tango and Cash, Bad Boys, and even the Rush Hour series. So. Yeah. Yeah. So Rotten Tomatoes has it at 80% on the tomato meter with an 86% audience score. IMDb gave it a 7.6 out of 10 with a 68 on Metacritic. That Metacritic is never right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing so. I've, my, my podcast has recently stumbled upon the, the idea of these brackets. Mm-hmm. And uh, we take the Rotten Tomatoes score the IMDb score and the Metacritic score, and we add them together, we just, we turn them all into a hundred. 
So like if <laughs> it says 7.6 on IMDb, it's 76. Gotcha. Metacritic, it's 27. It is amazing how much lower the Metacritic number is mm-hmm. compared to like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. Like yeah. every time across yeah. the board. It's like yeah. the critics on Metacritic just hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything that we like, obviously. Well, yeah. So I don't, I don't, I, I'll, that might be its own little separate, you know, uh, little separate mission to go on, go into Metacritic and find what gets, what gets an A in Metacritic? What 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 scales hot ninety plus on yeah. Metacritic? It's probably something that would put me to sleep, or I'd have to read all the subtitles. Citizen Kane. <laughs> so where does Lethal Weapon fall for you? Is it eighty percent, seven seventy six? Is in the seventies, eighties, nineties? I'd put it in the I'd put it in the high eighties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it it probably loses a little bit just as time goes on because. I mean, it it holds up better than a lot of other '80s movies, but it's oh, still, yeah. you know, it's still, you know, it's hard to watch some of these movies from the '80s and not just go, man. <laughs> yep, yeah. That, I mean, it, it's definitely from the '80s, you know. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still super enjoyable, and I mean, it's still solid movie. Yeah, I agree. I think I would put it in the high '80s. Yeah, I, I can't put it in low '90s. I think it's great. I think in some instances, I and I know we're kind of jumping, but I would almost rate Lethal Weapon Two a little higher than Lethal Weapon One, and maybe because the character is a little bit more established and the budget is a little bit better, the story is a little bit more cohesive. But it's still a great, it's still a great movie. Yeah. So maybe that maybe that's my hot take that I'm picking a sequel better than the original, but well, there's a lot of times where where the sequel is not necessarily better than the original, but like because you don't have to do the origin story, mm-hmm. you get right into it. Like the yeah. sequel, you know. Yeah. I mean there's there's things that I don't like about Lethal Weapon 2, so I'm not saying Lethal Weapon 2 is perfect, but I think just when I think about the two together, it's like I usually watch Lethal Weapon because I want to watch Lethal Weapon 2, and I feel like I have to watch the first one to prepare myself for the second one, okay. uh, just to watch yeah. them in that order. So, but, uh, but it's still great. It's still one of my, it's definitely, it's definitely in my top 10 favorite action movies of the 80s um, yeah. by far. And I could, I could say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I still consider it one of my movies to watch every year for Christmas, even though I haven't watched every year for Christmas. But, I would still put it in the Christmas category. Yeah. I will say the one thing I noticed watching it again, it is, and maybe because uh, I've watched all four movies here, there, and then the series, this one is a lot darker than I remember it being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think because like when, you know, when you get to like adding Joe Pesci and then Chris Rock and yeah, like they, you, you start adding in the comedy elements. It gets funnier and lighter, and, mm-hmm. and who knows what they're going to do with the fifth one that they just announced. But. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I didn't put this on my notes, but I'm pretty sure that was one of the things why Shane Black decided not to do the second one was because they wanted to add so much more comedy. They wanted to lighten the tone more for the sequels, and of course, you know, he fought because he won. And I didn't put this in there either, but um. He wanted Riggs, to, not in the first one, in his original script for this for Die Hard, not Die Hard, his original script for Lethal Weapon 2 
Riggs was supposed to die. And they actually filmed two separate endings, one with Riggs dying and one with them living. But of course the producer was like, you can't kill off Riggs. You're killing our franchise. We've got to keep Riggs. And so that was one of the reasons why he walked away from the project was because they wanted to make it funnier and he, they wanted to keep Riggs alive. So, I mean, yeah, I would easily put it in, in the higher categories. I, uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously set at Chris. This is my thing about Die Hard. I'm fine if you want to call it a Die Hard movie, but I have a category of non Christmas Christmas movies. <laughs> um, Die Hard Lethal Weapon and a bunch of movies like that, I set in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you take Die Hard and set it at a July 4th party, it still works. Not a lot changes. Right. Right. You know, same thing with Lethal Weapon. You could put it at a, an Easter. So, you know, they could be celebrating <laughs> Easter and, and having a big, you know, and it doesn't change what happens with the movie. And so for me, that's why I don't like I struggle more with like Gremlins. Okay. Being a Christmas movie because, you know, there's so much of it's intrinsic on being a Christmas, like it's a Christmas present. Um, yeah, yeah. Her whole yeah. her whole story about her father and right. why she hit you know, but like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm gonna. I mean, I'll watch Die Hard in July. I'll watch Die Hard in December. <laughs> I right. will. Right. You know. So you know, I'm not gonna fight you if you want to call it a Christmas movie. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of Christmas music in it. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's it is it is what it is. So. I hear your logic. I I respect your logic. And we'll uh, move I on. Mean, yeah, like I said, I mean, I'm not going to fight you either way. You oh know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this. I, mean, not, I know this isn't that I kind know, of podcast. Yeah, I know. I know people who are are dogmatic about Die Hard not being a Christmas movie because it's not about Christmas or it's mm-hmm. not. But it's like, yeah, but the whole movie takes place at a Christmas party. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I I will and I have argued both ways for it. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. I got you. Yeah. And the same, like, I agree, the same can be said for Lethal Weapon. It has Christmas elements. Is it a tried and true Christmas movie? Not really, but it's still enjoyable to watch at Christmas or around Christmas time. So, Absolutely. And also in the middle of July or September or October or whenever you want to put it in. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for being a part of this episode. I'm glad to have you on for the first time. Definitely have you back for more episodes in the future but uh one more time let us know about your podcast all right it's uh, called pop culture roulette uh, you can find us on facebook or instagram or if you want to find us on our website it's mediapodsmash.com backslash pop culture roulette speaking of christmas movies we have in the next week next week we're recording um we're gonna have the ultimate Christmas movie and ultimate non-Christmas Christmas movie <laughs> uh, bracket challenge where oh, we're going to cool. decide what's the best Christmas movie and what the best non-Christmas Christmas movie is. So we're, we're going to record that episode next week and get that out here pretty soon. So you have that to look forward to. Cool. Sounds good. Definitely check that one out. I, I've listened to several episodes of the pop culture roulette podcast. It's a lot of fun. You and your friends are very interesting and uh, very uh, very comical in your many takes of what's going on in pop culture news. So yeah. it's always uh, always a fun listen. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.
Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through our social media pages. Search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating along with a stellar written review. And don't forget to follow us on Apple and Spotify as well. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.